talking. I'll move the mic. You're going to, okay. <laughs> Thanks. I'm Claire, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Claire. I've been waiting all evening for this. <laughs> These guys are hard to, I mean, this is really bad right now. <laughs> They're giving me a hard way to go. I want to thank the committee and, and uh, oh, I mean that with all my heart. Uh, you, you know, you've just spoiled me rotten. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that uh, until tonight. <laughs> until tonight. Yesterday afternoon, you heard one of uh, my uh, favorite people, Don, speak. And he taught me how to laugh. God, I love him. You know, he just taught me how to you know, to make me laugh and, and, uh, and, and know that I'm okay with, uh, with being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, being a drunk. And uh, last night, of course, you seen, you know, you seen Gary. And poor Julie, I mean, you know, when they moved into Indiana, we all, all we women fell in love, you know, instantly. And we all wanted to be in his workshop, you know. <laughs> and um, I love Gary to death. He's my, one of my dearest friends. You know, I want to grow up to be like him. <laughs> I won't tell any secrets, so. Um, this morning, you had, a, you had the absolutely the most perfect lady I've ever heard in my life speak, and then there's me. <laughs> Sarah, you know, I, I loved it. Thank you so much. And now you're, you know, you got me, and, and uh, I'm just not going to... Apologize. I'm just going to tell you that I'm a real alcoholic, and uh, the big book tells me to share in a general way what I used to be like and what happened and what I'm like now. And I've got to get comfortable, and I've got to tell you a, little, a few little things before I get started. And uh, it worried me when Jack said he listened to my tape <laughs> that many times. Um, one of the things I'd like to share with you is this. You know, um, there was this little uh, boy, and his dad, uh, his dad came home one day from work, and he said, Son, he said, um, have you been a good boy today? And he said, No. And he said, Have you been a bad boy today? And he said, No. And he said, Well, what have you been? And he said, Just comfortable. Just comfortable. And that's what I've been since I've walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, just comfortable, you know. I'm real grateful to be me, and I'm real grateful to be a member of AA. You know, being a woman alcoholic was, might be, it was real hard when I first come around, but today, you know, I'm real grateful to be there. There was this little, uh, well, this teacher, and she asked these little kids, and I, I'm going to tell you about this. This is neat. I, she, uh, she asked these kids to, to write an essay about what they wanted to be when they grew up, and um, so there was, you know, these little tiny kids in school, and one of them stood up and he said, My name is Dan, and when I grow up to be a man, I want to go to Japan. Well, then there was this little girl over here, and her name, she stood up and she said, My name is Sadie, and when I grow up to be a lady, I want to have babies and babies and babies. Well, there was this little rebel in the back of the room, and he stood up and he said, My name's not Dan, and I don't give a damn about Japan. But when I grow up to be a man, I want to help Sadie with her plan. (laughs) 
One more. This doesn't have anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous, but yet if it does, have at it. Now, if you identify... Okay, all right? There was this secretary, and she had an affair with her boss. <laughs> yeah, there's some of them identified. And she, got, and she got pregnant. So she come in one day, and she told the boss, she said, you know, I'm pregnant. I, you know, what am I going to do? And he said, you got to get out of town. And... Uh, Instead, you got to get out of the state. I mean, maybe we better put you out of the country. And uh, so they <laughs> they decided to send her to Germany because, see, that's where she was. Uh, that's where she was from, Germany. And before they left, they decided they needed a code. They needed to know what, uh, you know, when the baby came. He wanted to know what it was. He wanted to know what was going on. So they decided on sauerkraut. So about seven months later. You know, he got a call at the office, and, uh, and it was his wife, and she said, uh, Honey, I got the strangest telegram today. And she, he said, Oh, you did? And he said, Yep. Yeah. he said, Would you read it to me? He said, Sauerkraut, sauerkraut, sauerkraut. <laughs> Two with wieners, one without. <laughs> I love the laughter. You know, I love the laughter. Thank you so much. You're so kind. I um, I just don't want to ever forget how I cried, you know. I love the laughter. It was penny any poker, and it was weekend parties, and it was booze, and it was normal for my family to drink. My family would ice down the booze, and they'd get out the cards, and they'd start playing poker and before the evening was out there'd be a lot of slamming and of doors and a lot of cussing and a lot of you know, swearing I'll never do this again and the next week they do it all over again all over again and I used to grow up you know I grew up saying God I don't want to grow up to be like them please don't let me be like them and I grew up to be just like them you know I um, I'm the youngest of I mean youngest God I wished I was I'm the oldest of three kids <laughs> I have a sister and a brother, and um, you know I, um, you know I, I really, um, my brother, he's a joy of my life. I wanted to get him sober, tried to keep him sober, and you know, and and, and he got sober in spite of me. <laughs> and uh, you know, he went around, I went around trying to get him sober, you know, get the right sponsor, trying to get him to the right meetings, trying, you know, and. Um, Poor old Dick, he, he did. He hung in there in spite of me, you know. But he gave me something, you know, and uh, when he came into the program, he taught me firsthand, firsthand, and I want to share that with you before I go on, that it's cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient. And, uh, you know, the thing that I do know is my own family. I've seen, uh, you know, alcoholism at its finest. Because Richard, you know, he was going to these meetings, and he got tired of going. And he got tired of reading that big book. And he got tired of, of listening to people like me share. And he decided he was going to take a leave of absence about four years in the program. And, and he did. And about seven years without a drink, you know, uh, it got him. It got him. And, you know, he went out and he got drunk. He got, uh, he, he got a DWI. He, he got thrown in jail. And, uh, and he had to borrow uh, money from his 80-year-old mother to, to get out of jail. And I said, Richard, you don't drink well. And he said, you go to hell. Because, you see, I stood for everything he wasn't at that point in time, and, you know, in, his, in my sobriety. 
but you see, I've seen it firsthand. If I don't treat my disease and I don't go to meetings and I don't do the things that I'm supposed to do on a daily basis, you know, and I get complacent in my sobriety that somewhere along the line it's going to wait for me and it's going to get me. You know, and it's going to get me. My uh, my mother, she's a, she was the controller. She controlled we kids. She controlled the checkbook and she controlled my dad. And God, I used to... You know, I used to pray, God, I don't want to grow up to be like her either. And I grew up to be just like her. And she's kind of the joy of my life today, too. There was, a, you know, through Alcoholics Anonymous and in working the steps, you know, I've been able to reach out and to put my arms around this lady that I didn't want to grow up to be like. And today I'm the mother and she's the child. I have her in a nursing home in the Alzheimer's unit in, in Carmel, Indiana. And... Uh, I can go on a daily basis and I can love her and I can comb her hair and I can wipe her face and, and uh, you gave me that. And I'm real grateful for that. You know. And when they say, gosh, you look just like your mom, I can say thank you and mean it today. And there was a day that I didn't mean that. I hated it when someone said I looked like my mother because I didn't want to grow up to be like her. My father, I can't say he was an alcoholic, but I can tell you he was a real sick man because on June the 25th of 1975, he put a gun in his mouth and blew his head off. And that bought me a lot of drunks. Because, see, at that time, I was really drinking pretty heavy. And, you know, and I, and I, um, I had all these I should have. God, if I could have just told him I loved him. You know, he left when I was 23 years old, married a lady that was two years younger than me, and, and I hated him for it. But I couldn't tell you that when I came into the program. You know, I thought I was one of these gals that was real open-minded and, and, uh, and didn't bother me. But when I got taking the inventories and looking at the things that I needed to look at on a daily basis, I knew, you know, the, the anger and the resentments and, and what I had to do to, to relieve myself of this, this uh, rage that was inside of me that I didn't know what was inside of me. And, uh, you know, in doing the inventories and working the steps and getting a sponsor that kept me active, I've been able to deal with those things and those feelings and those emotions. I know my dad was as good a father as he was capable of being, and he loved us as much as he could love us. In 1946, I never took my friends home. Uh, you know, I never knew what was happening in my house. So I never took anybody home. So I'm telling, you know, gosh, I'm telling my age. This is awful. My husband uh, married a child bride, okay? I'll straighten that out right now. But in 1946, I was, uh, I was on the search, standing on the circle, and I met this uh, tall, good-looking, red-headed guy. That he was um, in a soldier's uniform. He was stationed out at Fort Harrison, and... And he had freckles all over his body, and, and I found that out later, and, and, uh, and he did, and he does. <laughs> and um, he walked me to the bus, and, and we got all the necessary requirements to start dating, and we started dating in December. We were engaged in February 1st of 1947. We were married. And through God's grace and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, we've been married 48 years as of town. Um, he's at an Al-Anon conference this weekend, and he sent his love. Our Indiana State to Al-Anon convention is this weekend, and that's where he needed to be. And I'm real grateful that he feels uh, the, the uh, commitment to do that. 
and I would have been there too if he thought it, if, if I had not had the privilege of being here, and it is a privilege. I got to tell you, my home group is jo- is Johnson Avenue meeting. Uh, it's the uh, 55 Johnson Avenue. It's the East Side group. It's the best group in Indiana and in Indianapolis, and uh, they're having their 43rd anniversary uh, tonight. And when, uh, when uh, they called and asked me to come to speak, uh, I went to Mary Jane and I said, Mary Jane, she's my sponsor, and I said, um, that's our anniversary. I don't know what to do. And she said, oh, yes, you do. You just don't want to do it. <laughs> you go carry the message. So I'm here tonight, and somebody else is the food chairman tonight. I'm always the food chairman for my home group. So somebody else is taking care of that tonight. But, uh, so my thoughts uh, are, have been with them all evening, setting up, except when they pound on the table down here. <laughs> anyway, you know, I met this young man, and he was from Utah, and, and uh, we, we were married in February, February and, of 1947, and, and he took me away from this family I didn't want to grow up to be like, and we went out west. And he was a Mormon. And I met this family that didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't use God's name in vain, and, and my family did it all. And I didn't fit. You know, I just didn't fit. And, you know, um, I, I stayed out there for a little while, and, and I got missing this wonderful family that, that was back in Indiana. And, and Carl brought me back here. And, you know, uh, and that, you know, and he adopted my family's lifestyle. Penny any poker, weekend parties, and booths. And my family introduced him to the moose, and they taught him well for a long time, for about two or three years, you know. But he still, you know, when Carl picked up a drink, he'd feel guilty. I don't understand that. See, I, I never, whenever I picked up, I never felt guilty when I picked up a drink, but when he picked up a drink, he felt guilty. And so he never drank very much. You would have loved to drink with him because, see, if you, you know, if you had a case of beer, he'd drink two and, and we could have the rest. If I could get him to have a highball, I could have a pretty good evening. But he just never, he just couldn't hang in there with us, you know, he just wouldn't. We loved to dance and we, you know, and we joined the moose and we were busy having children and we had these three beautiful kids and Kathy and Mike and, and Chuck and, and, um, we, he became inactive in the church since he, he you know, he, he cut the apron strings and, and was there and he adopted my family's lifestyle and he didn't go to church and, and so uh, we were busy in, in the moose and, and he was a stepper and he had this hat with a tassel and he was a bartender and oh God, he made wonderful drinks and, and he listened to me when I said, you know, I, could, I never liked to drink, I could see through. And I still don't today. I have all these little odd things. You know, I don't like a cup of coffee that's half full. I want it full, you know. And so whenever I would, he would bring a drink back and I could see, I'd say, well, they didn't put a shot in that. Would you go back and put some more booze in? And he would, you know. And so even at, uh, at a young age, you know, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I didn't know I was an alcoholic ready to happen even. You know, I just know that I loved Canadian Club and ginger ale. I loved it at 17, I loved it at 25, and I'd probably love it today if I had it, you know. Uh, I love wine, and it went down smooth, and I'm a winette from the word go. You know, it took me places and nothing else would. And um, But, you know, there was a, 
There came a time my kids kind of started growing up. And I told you, Carl was feeling guilty. He had been taught well when he was a child, you know, in the church. And, and uh, the kids said, you know, he felt like the kids needed a good church background like he did. And so we, he said one day, he said, honey, he said, you know, we got to do something. And he said, you know, we, we, he would ask our, our daughter who had, was supposed to bring a friend home. And he said, Kathy, why didn't you bring her home with you from Sunday school today? And he, she said, Dad, I'm ashamed of you. And, uh, you know, he, he asked her why. You see, what she was being taught was the things that we were doing was wrong. And he felt bad. So he came to me and he asked me if we would just try to put our lives together and do something with these children. And, you know, this never ceases to amaze me that I made a decision right then and there to stop drinking just like that. And I never picked another drink up for 15 or 16 years. Never had another drink in my home for 15 or 16 years. We became active in church. We became active in Little League, PTA, in school. Uh, the kids were in mad, mad girls, mad, mad, well, they sang. <laughs> you know, I mean, and you know, they, um, they were good. They were, they were, they really were. My son was with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and, and you know, they, you know, we, we wrapped ourselves up with these children. But what happened was that one day they grew up and left home. And Carl and I had, you know, we had uh, communicated through our kids. And I had the opportunity to go to, to work at Kiefer Stewart Wholesale Drug and Liquor on the liquor order desk. <laughs> I got that job not because I was qualified. I got that job because a member of our church was going on a maternity leave and uh, they wanted someone that didn't drink and, and that was responsible. <laughs> I filled the bill, ladies and gentlemen. I filled the bill. I was responsible at that time, and I didn't drink. And I did a good job on that liquor order desk for about three years. But I'm here to tell you that the bottles will talk to you. And I sold booze, and I worked for the reps, and I loved it, you know. Uh, they, um, the one that uh, sold the most booze for the week, you know, on a promotion deal, one booze. And I won a lot of booze. I was good on those phones then, and I'm good on those phones now. The only difference is today I sell sobriety, and then I sold booze, you know. And, you know, the, the thing was, um, we, um, we'd take the booze home. And my husband would give it away. And I think he helped Richard into this program. I really think he did, because Richard loved us. Because, see, I'd take it home, and I, my brother would, would give it to him, you know, because he, he could drink, and we didn't. Well, anyway... There came a day I started watching, you know, the reps, and they were having a good time. The girls were having a good time in the office, and then there was me. And, you know, I felt like an outsider. I wanted to fit. You know, I, I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be like the rest of them, you know. And so uh, I thought, well, maybe if I could get them, you know, uh, Carl talked into going away on a getaway weekend, maybe we could, you know, the bishop wouldn't know and... My mother wouldn't know, and I'm not going to tell. And maybe we could take, we were getting our 25th anniversary was coming up, and maybe we could get away for that weekend and, and just have a good time and let, you know, and, and we did. We did. We swung from the chandeliers. <laughs> we had a ball. And Carl never said a word about that. Never said a word about that. You know, what I wanted to be was not that perfect, you know, that good little Mormon wife. I didn't want to be Carl's wife. I didn't want to be the kid's mother. I wanted to be one of these gals that when they went out to these parties, the gals had a good time and they danced on the tables and they had a ball. And so did the guys. 
And, you know, and, uh, and that's what I wanted to be down, you know, down deep, but I couldn't tell you that at that point in time. But, boy, I put a drink inside of me, and then I could. We went to this side of Louisville at the Marriott Hotel, and we took one bottle of cold duck. Cold duck had just came out, and, uh, and I had won that bottle, and I took that bottle with me, and we were celebrating our 25th anniversary, and we had cold duck all weekend. And Carl never said a word. He loved it. I think he liked me a little bit, you know. Um, never said a word about me drinking until we got ready to go home. And when we got ready to pull out of that parking lot, he said to me, he said, Honey, we haven't had booze in our home for 15 or 16 years. Let's don't take it home with us. And I agreed to that. I agreed to it. But I want to tell you, from that day forward, I never had a drink out of my mind. Because, see, I'd found the answer. That weekend, when I put that first glass of cold duck inside of me, I found the answer. And Gary's, Gary talks about it, that hole in your belly with the wind blowing through it. God, that was me. I went around for years to doctors trying to fill in the, up that hole. Couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Doctor after doctor. And you know I, when I, what happened was that the day that I put that booze inside of me, I could almost balance the scales. Because, you see, Carl was always up here and I was always down here. I always walked behind him. I never walked beside him. I never fit. I never thought there was always, I knew there was something wrong with me. Couldn't figure out what it was. I never, I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't thin enough. I wasn't smart enough. You know, he always accepted and I always questioned. And I still do today. But the thing is, today I, you know, I like me and I'm comfortable with me. And that's taken 17 years to be able to do that. I, um, as I said, when I pulled out of that parking lot, I never had a drink out of my mind from that day forward. And somewhere along the line, I had to lose that job because, see, I no longer was responsible. I couldn't show up anymore on Monday. I couldn't be responsible on that desk. The bottles were talking to me, and, I, you know, and, and the thing was that, see, I found out that, um, he didn't see my my uh, check, and I could buy booze wholesale, so why not buy what I like, Canadian Club? So I started buying, uh, you know, half pints, and I'd take it home, and I'd hide it. And by the time I, I had, um, you know, started bringing home gallons, Carl had a problem, and it was me. It was me. And I had to quit that job. But to save face, I went to work for, my, for myself, on, you know, and, and I had a, you know, I think every alcoholic ready to happen uh, goes into business for themselves. <laughs> and I went into business for myself, and I started Nan's Babysitting Service. Did a good job there, too, for about three years. And they had these most wonderful bars, and they stocked it with anything you wanted to drink. It was wonderful. They bought it by the case. I mean, you know, and these kids got on my nerves. You know, and uh, Nanny would have to have a drink. <laughs> and, you know, the thing that would happen was, that, you know, uh, before the night was out, Carl would have to stay all night because Nanny was drunk. And then Carl would have to come home the next day because Nanny wasn't able to get these children up. Now, I'm not proud of that, but that's just the way it was. You know, they left their most precious possession with this lady. And they went out of state and out of country, and, you know, and I made good money. They gave me a car. They gave me an expense account and, they, and a checkbook, you know, and, and the keys to their home. And I lived in these 100, 
$200,000 homes, and, and, uh, and I watched these beautiful, beautiful children. And I was a drunk. And there was a day that Carl had to come home because, see, I, would, um, I had decided in the middle of the night I was going to clean the, the oven, and, um, and I was drunk. But the oven didn't shut off in time, and I, somewhere along the line in my drunken stupor, I had broken off the handle, and it just kept heating and heating and heating. And the house almost burned down. And I could have killed those children. Needless to say, my husband was not real happy, and neither was that family. Neither was that family. I've, um, you know, I've had a lot of amends I've had to make because of that. I can't tell you I abused those children physically, but I sure abused them verbally, and I had a lot of amends to make. But I do know that uh, somewhere along the line, one day Carl was... You know, he raised a lot of hell about my, my drinking, and, and uh, I called him up one day, and I said, Carl, if you want these kids taken care of, you come home and take care of them. I'm leaving. Because, you see, I was a runner. Whenever he would raise hell about my drinking, I would run. And I'd lock myself in. Nobody was going to tell me what to drink, where to drink, and how to drink. I made my own money. You know, when I walked into the, the, the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I sure identified with the men that said, you know, I can't understand why my wife, you know, gripes about what I do and where I go and what I spend. Because she's got clothes on her back and food on the table and, and shoes on her feet. You know, she has no right to tell me how to spend my money. And that's how I felt about the money I made. I surely identified with that. I really did. In, um, in 1970... Well, and let's see. Uh, I want to back up just a minute. Back in the 60s, my brother-in-law was uh, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had a drinking problem, and he went to AA. And we walked away from him. You know, isn't it a shame that we have an alcoholic in our home? Isn't it a shame we have an alcoholic in our family? Because, see, if he went to church and he did the things that he was supposed to do on, uh, you know, uh, paid his tithing and did whatever he was supposed to do in the church, he would never have picked up a drink in the first place. And we walked away from him. There was nine boys and one girl, and they all shut the door on him. What I want to tell you is that man carried the message to me because, see, when, I wanted, when, when I, the time came for me to come to Alcoholics Anonymous, the only thing we knew was for, about art. They found Art between Vernal, Utah, and Salt Lake City in, a, in a, his pickup truck, and he was dead. And I don't want to ever forget that I was part of that. No one talks about Art. They swept that under the rug, and I was part of that. But he carried the message to me in 1976. In the latter part of 1976, I was given the, my first choice, and that was um, because, you know, I... It was alcoholism at its finest. My drinking was really heavy now, and I was running, and I'm locking myself into motel rooms, and we're having a lot of fights and arguments, and we're having to do The same thing is happening in my home as it was happening years ago when I was a child and didn't want to grow up to be like them. And one of the finest uh, d descriptions of alcoholism at its finest uh, happened uh, October the 31st of 1976. On that day, I was raped. Now, I was drinking the day before. And I was on a babysitting job 
And this nanny was, you know, was drunk the day before, and I was drunk thereafter from day day one. But when they called Carl and they asked Carl to come home, he didn't come in and say, Honey, I'm so sorry that happened to you. God, I'm so sorry. See, I had taken a very gentle, very kind, very loving man, and I turned that man into a monster. When he seen me, you know, the first thing he said to me at that hospital was, What the hell have you done to me now? What have you done to me now? Alcoholism at its finest. And I was given my first choice. Go to treatment. Get some help or else. We didn't know what else, except that Carl had a brother that was in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we had walked away from him. And so my husband called because, see, I wouldn't. I felt like if he wanted me to get help, by gosh, he'd call. You know, I'm not about to. And he did. And there was this beautiful lady at central office, and it doesn't happen that way today, you know, but it happened that way for me. And I'm real grateful it did. You know, I know that I'm supposed to be here. I don't know whether it's to to share with you or whether it's to share with someone else, but I know that I'm supposed to be here because, you know, I I did nothing to help me get here. Nothing. I'm here through God's grace. Carl had called that central office and he had talked to this beautiful lady called Virginia. And Virginia, he told Virginia that he had this drunk at home and he didn't know what to do with her. And she said, maybe he needs to, she needs to go to treatment. And he didn't know where to take me. And she made the phone calls. He didn't. And I didn't. Virginia did. And she found out there was a place, and it was down in Batesville, Indiana, and there was a place in, in Fairbanks Hospital in Indianapolis, and I didn't want to go to Fairbanks. I didn't want anybody to know I was an alcoholic, you know. Tell my mother I, you know, I had a nervous breakdown because, see, I'd rather been crazy than been an alcoholic. You know, to be an, to be crazy, see, uh, you know, I could, I'm, I don't have to be responsible. <laughs> to be an alcoholic, I have to be responsible for my actions. I ended up December the the um, the ninth of nineteen seventy six in my first treatment center, and I loved it. They put those green pajamas on me, and they treated me with love and kindness, and they talked to me, and they had the 12 steps and the 12 traditions on the wall, and it was wonderful. Carl hadn't talked to me for a long time. My children didn't talk to me. You see, what I had done, I had ripped the, you know, the, uh, the blanket out from under them. This was this perfect, you know, woman that, that lady, that the, the good little Mormon girl that, and that uh, I no longer wanted to be that good little Mormon girl. I didn't want to be Carl's wife or the children's mother, and uh, they didn't know what to do with me either. And they, they wanted their dad, to, you know, Dad, please just just leave her, just leave her. Anyway, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was there for 14 days. God, I love Dad. And I was in those green pajamas, and they told me to get a sponsor, and they told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I left there December the 23rd of 1976, and I'm going to put the world together. You know, and I'm never going to drink again. And I got a sponsor, and her name was Hope, and she said, Don't drink, go to meetings and read the big book. And I grew to hate that. Grew to hate that. She's not my sponsor today, but she's one of my neatest friends. But I'll tell you what. The thing was that um, I went to meetings. 
and uh, February 1st was rolling around and nobody celebrated it, so I did. You know, that was my that was my anniversary, and I would have been married 29 years, and I somebody had to celebrate, so I did. You know, it made sense to me. And Carl came home that day, and I'm going to meetings. And Carl came home that day, and he found me, you know, passed out on my favorite position. Women do not pass out real sexy. Now, I don't know, I mean, about you guys, but women don't, you know. We just don't, you know. It's. Um, but anyway... <laughs> And I'm passed out, and when I come to, I try to tell Carl that, that, you know, I had the flu. And in on the in on the kitchen table was a half a bottle of champagne, and that was one of many. Needless to tell you that um, there was no hell in my home like there was in 1977. No one has the right to tell me to go to hell because in 1977 I already went. See, when I left that treatment center, December the 23rd of 1976, I was given some promises. And I'd like to share them with uh, that new little girl of three days, who looks wonderful. I don't know how you did it. Welcome. But I'd like to share this with you, and I'd like to promise you, if you walk out of here tonight after listening to me, and if you decide to pick up a drink, these things will happen to you. It's a promise, if you keep drinking. One of the they said if you know if you walk out of here and you pick up a drink and you've never gone you know if you've never gone to jail, if you've never wrote bad checks, if you've never tried to commit suicide, if you've never seen the inside of a psych ward, if you've never lost your home, your family, your children, or sold your soul for a drink, pick one up, lady, and you will. And I said bullshit, because see I knew that I'd never drink again, and I walked out of there knowing that full well that I was never going to pick up another drink. I was different. I was different. And in 1977, everything they told me came true. Everything. I was going to meetings and see, I meetings and I went to meetings. And at the end of uh, February, we'd had one of these heavy debates that we have in our home. And it took three operations to save this wrist. I'm drunk. And I, you know, and I'm angry at him, and I want to make him pay. You know, this sob I'm married to. If it, you know, if you were married to him, you'd drink too. You know, and and I would have told you that because he was the reason I was. You know, he really was. I believed that with every breath in me. Carl was the reason I drank. And so, you know, I I was drunk, and I broke my glass, and I cut my wrist, and it took three operations to save it. And you know, I. I the day I come home from the hospital, I, I went right back to drinking. And you know what I did? I, I, never, I never told anyone I was drunk when I cut my wrist, and neither did Carl. He was a good liar. He, he covered up a good drunk. He hid a good drunk for a long time. We had a lot of hell in our home. You know, I wished I could tell you that, you know... I don't mean to offend anyone when I stand up here, but I'm, you know, I my sponsor tells me I have, don't have the right to cheat you. And in my home, it was hell. It wasn't. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry you picked up a drink. No, we we fought. I mean, it was hell in our home. And uh, you know, it. I had taken this very gentle, kind, loving man, and and I said turned him into a monster. I taught him, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't teach him sign language. I taught him the language out of a sailor. You know, I made him, you know, he, he came out fighting. 
He really did. Because he was fighting something he didn't know what to fight. He didn't know what to do with me. He didn't know what to do with alcohol, you know. And, and so when he, what happened was that the two of us would clash and we'd have these heavy debates, you know, God. You know, it was terrible at times. On, the, on uh, June the 9th, I, you know, I had decided I didn't want to live anymore. And uh, I had a hundred darabana. I'd had my, my son fill that day a prescription. And that day I knew I couldn't stop drinking. And I knew that day I was going to end up like my dad. And, uh, and I wanted out. And it was the easier, softer way. I could no longer stand the pain in Carl's eyes and Chuck's eyes because, see, Chuck was home off his mission and they were going nose to nose. They were fighting like crazy in our home. And it was over me. God, Chuck, where is she tonight? You, you know, why didn't you watch your mom today? You know, where is she? And I'd be in the motel and I'd be locked in there and I'd be drinking because, see, nobody had the right to tell me what to do or where to do it and how to do it. And so that day I picked up that, that uh, my favorite drink now, which I found out was vodka, and I did because, see, somewhere along the line I heard you people say it didn't smell. <laughs> and Carl could smell it over the phone. <laughs> he could tell me what I was drinking, when I was drinking, and where I was drinking. You know, oh, I hated him for it. You know, he was, uh, he was introduced to Al-Anon in... in back in December of 1976 and he started going off and on but I gave him a desire to get active <laughs> oh, I really did and he, they taught him well they taught him you know he wrote notes on my bottle like think 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 this shit will kill you that's what he wrote on the bottle that's exact words he said this shit will kill you and then he would measure it you know and oh I hated him for it <laughs> oh I hated him for it I had a hard time hiding my booze from him. I really did. Till one day, the Al-Anons told him, you know, dummy, if you pour it out, you're pouring out your money, you know. Don't, don't help her, you know. Let it, let it, she's going to get another bottle. Don't pour it out anymore. So, you know, I loved those Al-Anons when they started telling him that. <laughs> so I... <laughs> but, you know, by that time, by, by June the 9th, I knew I couldn't stay sober. And I'd taken that $100 bond. And I ended up in community hospital in the intensive care in the cardiac unit. And five doctors have told my husband I wouldn't live through the night. And they called my children home and they planned my funeral. And uh, somewhere along the line I came to. And somewhere along the line they decided that Clara was crazy. And they locked me up in the psych ward. Now, I've already tried to commit suicide twice. You know, I've wrote the bad checks. And I've wrecked the car. There was a night that I was um, coming out of the gold brick there on 46 and Franklin Road, if any of you know of Lawrence, Indiana, in that famous gold brick tavern. And I pulled around the corner and I hit a lady. And I had a, a, oh, a half pint or a pint in between my legs. And it was, you know, a vodka, and it was open, and I knew that the police were coming. And I was drunk, and the door opened, and a young man, a young policeman stood there, and he said, My God, Mrs. Case, you were, you're drunk. 
You see, this young man graduated from my son, with my son from Lawrence Central High School. Now, that hasn't happened to me since I've been sober. Now, there's something to that, you know, I think. There really is. That hasn't happened to me since I've been sober. But anyway, on June the 9th, when that happened, you know, that I ended up in that psych ward, and I ended up in um, intensive care. They planned my funeral, and they called my children home. And, uh, and when I came to, they put me in that uh, psych ward. See, my liver had stopped functioning, and I gained around 20 pounds in about a 24-hour period. It was like instant pregnancy, 10 months. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't walk. They had to lift me. It took weeks before I could walk. It took weeks before my liver started functioning, and, uh, and they locked me in that psych ward, and uh, they kept me there. You see, my husband had complete control, and I hated him for it. And I didn't think about, you know, that drinking had got me there. I didn't think that, you know, I was drunk the day that I cut my wrist and it took three operations to save that wrist. I didn't think about the fact that I took a hundred Darvon and I ended up, you know, almost dying. My liver stopped functioning and I ended up with cirrhosis of the liver. No, none of that was, you know, the only thing I thought about was the man that locked me up in that psych ward and I hated him. And I planned his death. I figured if I could get out of there, I was going to kill that SOB. Because, see, he still was the, you know, he was the reason I was. I could still, I could not look at the fact that my drinking, I couldn't be responsible for my actions. God, it was too painful. It had to be somebody else. It just had to be. You know, I I walked out of that psych ward sometime, this was in, I went in hospital in June, June the 9th. I walked out of that hospital sometime in September, and I, I never stopped drinking from that day forward. I went home from that hospital and went directly to the liquor store, and I never stopped drinking from that day forward. Carl came home one night, and he said, Clara, he said, I, you know, I love you, but I hate everything that booze is doing to you, and from this day forward, you can live or you can die. I'm going to go on living with or without you, honey. See, Al-Anon was teaching him well. I no longer could set him up. I couldn't use him. He had put the responsibility back on my shoulders. And from that day forward, it was mine. And I had to choose whether I wanted to get sober or whether I wanted to die drunk. And for a while, you know, I, you know, I stayed drunk. And I did everything I could do to get a drink. And he did everything he could do to keep me from getting one. What he did was, you know, he took my name off the checkbook. He took my name off the credit card. And, it, you know, and because, see, what I did, I bankrupt that man. I decided that I was going to run because, see, he had told me that, you know, the only thing I could do is lock you up in Central State, lady. Uh, you know, you're crazy, and I owe your mom. And he had the papers, and he was ready, and he was going to do that. And, you see, I knew he was following through, and I was scared. And I ran one more time. And this time I ran to San Diego. I don't know why I ran to San Diego. I ran to San Diego. It sounded like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and you know, I got, I, I, you know, I, I got a, a place. I, I took a Greyhound bus and went to San Diego. And, uh, and it, there's a hotel that's connected onto the Greyhound bus station. And I'm going to stay there in, in, in June and July. And it's called the Pickwick. And um, I was on the sixth floor of that hotel. They had uh, a wonderful bar and sailors. 
And I had a good time for a while. But what happened to me, I ended up on Skid Row. And I don't know how I got there, and I don't know how I got back. But what I am going to tell you is this. There was a day that I was a lady. I had been married almost, I had been married 29 years, and I had three beautiful kids, eight beautiful grandchildren at that time, and I was willing to do whatever it took to get a drink. I went down that slide just like that. I was willing to be the prostitute and the whore. Whatever it took, Clara was willing to pay the price, and the price was right. The price was right. On a Sunday morning, I woke up in the, on that sixth floor in the Pickwick, and, and, and I didn't want to drink anymore. I didn't know who I was with, and I didn't know how I got back there. I just knew I wanted to be sober more, and I wanted to be drunk. And I was scared to death, and I didn't know what to do. Except I remember back in Batesville, Indiana, there was a man named Butch, been sober a long time. And they had this wonderful lady named Dolly there and Miss Blue. And they loved drunks. And I was there for a while. And I knew if I could get back there, I'd be safe. You know, they talked about being safe. And that's what I wanted to be, was safe. And uh, I shipped my clothes home to my husband because, see, I knew if he found out that I was going to treatment one more time, he wouldn't let me go. Because, see, I begged him to let me go to treatment, and he said, Hell no, you abuse the right to go there. He's changed his mind since then. He knows it takes some of us longer than others to get here. It takes what it takes, you know, and it takes as long as it takes. I left San Diego. It was 29, it was 78 uh, degrees uh, San Diego, and I got in, in Batesville, Indiana. It was 29 below zero. I got there on January the 18th. And I went over to, to Serenity Hall, January the 19th, 1978. Stayed nine days on the hospital side because they thought my liver was acting up again. And they wheeled me over to Serenity Hall, and it was freedom from bondage. Nothing had changed, ladies and gentlemen, except me. They still had the 12 steps. They still had the 12 traditions. They still had Butch, Dolly, Miss Blue. Nothing had changed except Clara. I wanted to be sober more, and I wanted to be drunk, and I was willing to do whatever it took to stay sober. And from that day forward, I've been willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober on a daily basis. But you know, when I left there, I didn't know whether I didn't have any place to go. We didn't have halfway houses. I didn't know what to do with me, and Carl didn't know what to do with me. He didn't want me home, and I didn't want to go home. So he put the trailer down on Joey Lake there in Batesville, Indiana, and I stayed there for almost a year. And I went to the treatment center every day, and I stayed there, you know, eight and nine, ten hours a day, and they allowed me to stay there. And I'll be forever grateful for that. You know, and I'd never been alone. I had never, I had never bought my own clothes. I had never had to be responsible for me. And I had to learn how to be responsible for me. And there was a beautiful lady there, and her name is Lita, and she was my counselor, and she taught me how to be a woman again. She taught me how to put makeup on and to fix my hair. She taught me how to say yes and no. You know, and she taught me how to be able to stand up and look you in the eye. And that was, you know, that was something I could not do. 
and she taught me how to not to be guilty. I felt so guilty. I felt so dirty, and I felt so ashamed. You know, I was telling Roger when when I was in treatment, they we had seen these films, and it was Father Martin, and they were talking about uh, the percentages of alcoholics, and with Catholics and Jews and and Protestants and Mormons, and two out of ten Mormons become alcoholics, and sitting in that treatment center at that point in time was two alcoholics and they were Mormons and one of them was me (laughs) and I felt real guilty real guilty and for a long time I could not face that on December the 4th of 1978 they pulled a trailer you know out of uh, Joy Lake and took me home Butch and said Claire it's time you get active in your own recovery and I was scared to death to go back to Indianapolis, and I was scared to death of you, and I was scared to death of me. But I came back to Indianapolis, and I started getting active in my own recovery. And I started working the program, and I started real busy in, in uh, chairing meetings and, and sharing and doing whatever I was supposed to do on a daily basis, except I forgot to get a sponsor. Now, I was looking for the right sponsor this time. You know, this time around, I had I didn't want to make any mistakes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm i here to tell you, if you, um, you know, I, I ran around for 18 months sponsoring myself. So if you're sponsoring yourself, you're sponsoring a fool. <laughs> At 18 months in this program, I, uh, you're capable, I was capable of doing the same thing that I did drunk. I took a knife, and you know, the same butcher knife that I tried to kill my husband with when I was drunk, and I threw it at him because, see, I was trying to, I, I wanted him to talk about the Clara that was and not the Clara that used to be, you know, and he was talking about this drunk he used to have, and I, and I was so angry, and I had this knife, and I was at the sink, and I turned around, and I threw that knife, and I could, I stuck it in the floor right in front of him. Now, I could have gone through him. And I realized what I did, and I went, and I got my car keys, and I got my purse, and I took off for the club. And I got to Club Easton, and uh, thank God for the men in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because those guys loved me that night and told me, you know, you've got to get active in your own recovery, Claire. You've got to get a sponsor. you be back here tomorrow. Mary Jane's going to be here, and you, you know, ask her to be a sponsor. And I heard that. For the first time in 18 months, I humbled myself enough to listen to what you told me. You know, I ran around crazy for 18 months just going to meetings, just, you know, just taking a chair. That didn't make me a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I was just a visitor. Now, I would have denied that if you just questioned me about that. Today, I'm a member in good standing in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm active in my own recovery. Today I have a sponsor, and today I use that sponsor, and today I, I work the steps. Today I know what the steps are, and I apply those steps in my life. You know, the thing that I knew, uh, Mary Jane said then, and, and, uh, and, and I tell my girls today, when I asked her to be my sponsor, she said, I only sponsor women that are willing to be active in their own recovery. And that's exactly what I tell the girls that I sponsor. If you ask me to be a sponsor, I tell you that I'll only sponsor women that are willing to be active in their own recovery. And here are the steps we took, and this is what we do. You know, a service is the easier, softer way. 
And then, you know, I had, uh, I got this wonderful button and I got it from Don, from Don. It says, service is the secret, and it is. And I got active and, and I started getting, I kept active and, and it's been, um, I started sponsoring girls and, and those girls make me walk what I talk. God, I love my babies. You know, they, they make me walk what I talk. About six years in the program, <clears throat> I'm real active and I'm, I'm busy in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm real happy and, and I've, um, well, I'm, let me back up for just a minute. I want to share with you at about four years in the program, it took, I had to be four years before I could ever see my children. Now, I haven't been inside of a church yet. I haven't been inside of a chapel, except maybe uh, some church basements for AA. But at four years in the program, I went home for the very first time to see my children. See, I wasn't allowed. I don't know about you ladies, but see, I had a price I had to pay. I had to earn the right to be a mother again. I had to earn the right to be a wife again. I had to earn the right to be a grandmother again. They didn't want me in their life. They didn't care if I had two years of sobriety or six months of sobriety or two years, you know, three years. They didn't care. They would call and talk to my husband, but they never shared with me. And at four years in the program is when I walked into my daughter's home for the very first time. And I was four years sober scared to death. Five years in the program before I was able to walk into my son's home. Scared to death. Six years in the program, my, my uh, sponsor asked me to go to a retreat. And I did what I, you know, I did what she asked me to do. And I went to this retreat down in New Albany, Indiana. She asked me to go to the chapel on Sunday morning. Six years sober, and I have not yet been to it. You know, I haven't been inside of a chapel. Could not handle that. But my sponsor said, you know, the day will come. Don't worry about it, honey. The day will come. You just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing on a daily basis, and it will come. Leave it up. You know, put it in God's hands. And I did that. So on Sunday morning, I went to the chapel, and I sat in the back of the room over here where Gary and Julie are sitting. And uh, we, my sponsor, we have a saying in Indiana, in Indianapolis, sickies up front. And uh, I sat up front. And, and that's, really, that's the truth. You know, um, I'll share this with you before I go on. I was in, in uh, Kentucky, in Louisville, at the Kentucky State Conference, 2,000 people. My sponsor is coming home from Florida, and so they decide to stop and, and surprise us there in Louisville. And she said, gosh, John, I don't know why we're going. How are we going to find her? She said, oh, I know. She walked around, and she came come right down to the front row, and there I was, sitting on the front row, <laughs> right where she told me to be. But anyway, on Sunday morning, I go to the back of the chapel, and I'm sitting over here in the far corner, and Mary Jane comes in the door, and she walks over. And she kneels down, and she takes my hand, and she said, Sicky's up front. And she walked me down the center aisle and set me on the first pew. And from that day forward, I was okay with me, and I was okay with God. I was willing to do whatever it took. I could clear away the wreckage of my past. I could do that. I could, you know, I could make those amends I needed to make with the church, and I could accept excommunication or disfellowship, whatever it took. My family was well enough. 
We don't have the right to do things to our family. I had no right to hurt my family, you know, somewhere along the line to clear away my wreckage. I had no right to do that. I had to wait till my family was well enough and I was well enough in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to clear away that wreckage. And working the steps, I was able to do that. And taking the inventories, I knew when the time was right. And I was led and guided by a wonderful, wonderful lady, you know, my sponsor. I've only had one sponsor, and, you know, and I, um, I don't know. I know a lot, you know, uh, this is just my opinion, and I'm allowed. It's my opinion. I got the mic, ladies and gentlemen, you know. <laughs> so, um, if, I, if I was allowed to have more than one sponsor, I could, say, I could tell you what you wanted to hear and what, you want, you know, what I wanted you to hear when you wanted to hear it, you know. And, and uh, Mary Jane has worked real fine for me for 17 and a half years. That lady knows me frontward, backward, sideward. She, you know, I can't con her. I can't use her. I can't set her up. She knows me. She loves me in spite of me. I, um, I had this wonderful little girl come into my life, and I want to share with you about Sandy. Sandy came into my life uh, through, uh, uh, through the church. We had this bishop call me, and, and uh, he said, Clara, are you still with Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, yes. He said, I got a little girl that's drunk, and she's a member of the Mormon church. She's got a drinking problem, and I don't know what to do with her. Would you please help us? And I said, yeah. So my husband went and met with the bishop and this young man, and this young man was Sandy's husband, and and he's a major in he's a lieutenant major in the army, and he was in full uniform, and he was standing at uh, you know, and he had to salute him. I mean, you know, man, he was standing. uh, However, he was you know erect, your man. I tell you. And uh, he had wanted nothing to do with uh, with uh, with Sandy. He wanted nothing to do with uh, with me, and he wanted nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I'm here to tell you that uh, somewhere along the line, in, in uh, about a year and a half later, Scott's going to Al-Anon, and he gives real good hugs today. And the kids are going to Alatine. And Sandy, she's in there. She's trudging. She made, you know, she got um, about a she got a year of sobriety, but then she uh, she got busy, you know. And she's one of these people like my brother. She got busy going to school, and she got busy with the family, and she got busy. She forgot the pain, and she got drunk. But she's back, and she's going to meetings again, and you know. She, but the bottom line was this: she gave me a gift, and that gift was. I got the opportunity to go downtown to the city-county building with her because the law said she had to go to, to this meeting of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. 200 people in this, in this room. 200. And I had to stand against the wall because there was no seats. And people like me got up and they shared. Only they talked about what we drunks do to their family. And there was this wonderful man that got up, and I'd like to share with you about Nicole. Because, you see, I'm a, I'm a drunk driver. I don't give a damn. If it's your family, I don't give a damn. If the easier, softer way is to get behind the wheel of the car, I don't care what price I have to pay to get a drink. Carl and I had some of our worst arguments over the keys to the house, the keys to the car. 
I didn't care. And I'd like to share with you about Nicole. Her grandfather was standing up at this mic, and he had this um, vanilla envelope. And he had eight to ten pictures inside of that, too. And he was passing it around. And there was this beautiful, beautiful little four-year-old girl. And her name is Nicole. And she was happy, joyous, and free, and she's on her bicycle. And you turn the page, and there's Nicole, and she's stretched out, you know, and she's on this stretcher. And she's by this car, which, you know, this lady had um, drug her 70 feet before she realized it, you know, that before she hit the curb, and drug her another 20 feet before she realized she had someone under the wheel of her car and busted Nicole's skull. Now, you know, the thing that happened was here was Nicole, and she's laying on this stretcher and, and uh, with all these machines and all these, uh, you know, lines coming out. And, and um, the next page, here's Nicole again. And little four-year-old Nicole is laying stark naked on this stretcher in the morgue, and the only thing she has on her is this little card that says Nicole on her ankle. And the next thing you know is the next page shows Nicole and the whole side of her head's bashed in. And it's really gruesome. And I get the opportunity to see these pictures. And as I turn the page, my legs get weaker and weaker and weaker. And by the time I got to the last page, you know, I knew that was me. That was what I would do if I pick up a drink. See, it's nobody's business what I drink. I don't give a damn what price I have to pay. I don't want to ever forget Nicole. And I'm real grateful that Sandy came into my life. I used to um, burn up the church magazine when it came to my home. I hated it because, see, it stood for everything that I wasn't, you know, and, and, and I hated it. And Carl never seen that church magazine for years. <laughs> when I got sober and the church magazine would come, I, I, I picked it up and I read it one day, and it, the ensign. And in there was an article on alcoholism and drugs in the, in the ensign. You know, we Mormons don't have a problem with drinking. And it talked about alcoholism and drugs, and it talked. It had a poem in there, and it was called Nobody's Business. And I've never seen an article there since. So I know God put it there just for me. And in closing, I'd like to share with you. And if I, you know, again, I would like to say, if, you, if, uh, if I have not said anything tonight that you can identify with, see if you want to pay the price. I don't. called nobody's business what I drink it's nobody's business what I drink I care not what the neighbors think or how many laws they choose to pass I'll tell the world I'll have my glass here's one man's freedom that can't be curbed my right to drink is undisturbed so he drank in spite of law or man then got into his old tin can stepped on the gas and let it go down the highway to and fro he took the curves at 50 miles with blurry eyes and a drunken smile not long till a car he tried to pass, and there was a crash, a scream, and breaking glass. The other car was upside down about two miles from the nearest town. The man was clear, but his wife was caught, and she needed the help of that drunken sot who sat in the muddle in drunken days 
and heard the scream and saw the blaze, but was too far gone to save the life by lifting the car up off the wife. The car was burned and a mother died while a husband wept and a baby cried. And a drunk sat by and still some think it's nobody's business what we drink. I'm Claire and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you.